Okay, we're in Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers will come down and bring you a Bible. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 through 66. It says, Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, they rejoiced with her. Now so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him by the name of his father Zacharias. And his mother answered and said, No, he shall be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to, the, to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet, and, they, and he wrote, saying, His name is John, and all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them, and all these things were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was with him. So we know from, we know from a few Sundays back that Elizabeth hid herself when she found that she was pregnant. Here, the time has come forth, she bears a son. She has a child, John the Baptist. Regardless of what the people thought before or what their attitude was before, the Bible says now they rejoice with her. They rally around her. And it's kind of cool. The Bible says that we should mourn with those who mourn and we should rejoice with those who rejoice. How do we behave when somebody else is blessed? Are we happy for them? In the world, you expect that people are going to smile to your face and say, oh, great job. And then when you turn around, they go, jerk, I should have got that promotion. But that's the way the world is. These people, they're a certain way towards you, but then when you turn your back, they're a different way. Unfortunately, that happens too many times with God's people, too, and it shouldn't be so. In verse 59, we see that the baby John is circumcised on the eighth day according to Jewish law. That's covered in Genesis 17. God instituted the covenant of circumcision of the male child uh, with Abraham and his descendants. It was a sign of his covenant with his people. And refusal could mean the cutting off, or did mean the cutting off of the person from their people. Why did God choose the eighth day to have the baby circumcised? Well, to throw a little modern medical science in here, studies have been done to show that a baby's full clotting factor is not at full strength until the eighth day. It's very interesting. Now, my son was circumcised on the second day of his life. But we've kind of tweaked things a little bit now that we have all the science. I remember the first day of his life, they took a big needle and they shoved it in his thigh. And I was like, what's that? It's like torture. But they said it's vitamin K. And if you pay attention in biology class, vitamin K is a precursor to prothrombin, which is a, a, a chemical that God makes in your body to cause the clotting. So we've kind, of, we've kind of brought the eighth day up to as far as the second day. But under normal circumstances, God knew what he was talking about. He set the law prior to all these developments that we had in science of the century so that the baby wouldn't bleed too much. The Bible is a very, a very scientific book. I think about, too, if, if you study your European history, the, the bubonic plague in Europe, which wiped out, I believe it was uh, a little bit more than a third of Europe. The Jews actually did very well. The Jews were the minority in Europe, but they did very well because they adhered to the scripture. Their sanitary laws, all these laws, they were very clean about things and uh, concerned about infection because the Bible set that forth in his, in his word. 
whereas most of the Europeans at that time kind of moved away from the scripture as their final authority. So the Jews did very well. And ironically, that gave rise later on to some anti-Semitism because people were skeptical. How did that group of people do so well? So the Bible is a very scientific book. You can't go wrong by following this word here. In verse 59 through 61, we see a little confusion of what to name the baby. Now, it was expected, according to tradition, to name a baby boy after his father, his grandfather, or other patriarch of the family. But God wanted him to be called by a special name, John. In the Hebrew, it's Yohanan, which means Yahweh has been gracious. Yahweh was the covenant name of God when Moses asked, when he was going to go to his people in Egypt, who should I tell them sent me? And God said, my name is yud heh which is really more of a, a meaning than a title. But Yahweh comes from that, those Hebrew consonants. In those days, names had a special meaning, and it was very important that Zacharias name his son Yohanan, Yahweh has been gracious, because that was an attestation to God's character. So that name had to stick. Now, obviously, the people aren't, as you can see, they're not satisfied with Elizabeth's response. So they turn to Zacharias. Now, Zacharias, we know, has been gently corrected by God for his faithlessness. And he's struck mute for nine months. Uh, And some people believe, some speculate that he was even deaf, too, because they actually had to make signs to him. Not only did he possibly couldn't, he couldn't speak, but it's possible that he couldn't hear either. So he's gently corrected to bring him to the place of obedience. Two things about this. This needed to happen because Zacharias had to be corrected to come to a place of faithfulness and trust in God. In Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, we read about God's correction towards, towards us, the people that he loves, as a father corrects a child. You've got to see the parallels there. The second thing about this is that Zacharias needed to be uh, needed to, to get with the program because him and his wife had to be immovable in the face of any type of pressure from the community or peer pressure. Remember, tradition, he was a priest. They were elderly couple. They probably hung out with the right people, you know, the, the right crowd. But tradition was very important in the priestly community, in the religious community. As a matter of fact, tradition is important today. Some people actually take tradition and elevate it above sacred scripture. It's one of those things that over time people adhere to that more. It's a lot easier than to, for them than to actually read what God says in his scripture. But who knows? What do you mean his name is John? Nobody in your family is named John. Are you going to break tradition? So peer pressure. That's kind of a funny phrase. We think that's just a team thing. Like you and I never succumb to peer pressure. Why is it so much easy to talk about Jesus here and in the lobby, but then when we go to work or on the bus or on the train, in public with strangers, we're intimidated? Maybe some of us don't open our mouths. Maybe when our coworkers uh, say, well, you're a Christian? Gee, you never said anything before. And you, you, you wonder to yourself, well, this was so easy. Why didn't I do it before? But we do succumb to peer pressure. Now, talking about the things of God on a train could save your life. I mean, if you're on a train and it's, it's nighttime and there's nobody else on the car, you're, you're by yourself and there's two thugs sitting across from you and you think they're going to rob you, I tell you what, if you start talking about end times and the end is near, they'll leave the car. They're not going to mess with you. <laughs> Take it from a cop. Criminals don't like crazy people. They want an easy target. So hopefully that one day that will save you. But that's, that shouldn't be our motivation. Peer pressure. 
there's going to be things that I'm going to say from this pulpit that might make me sweat a little bit, make me a little nervous inside, might put my other job in jeopardy, but I'm going to say it because that is what God has called me to do. We, we have to try to get past that. That's from the enemy. Peer pressure is from the enemy to try to get us to feel silly about ourselves and what we believe. But we need to be bold. Even Paul, he wrote half the New Testament. He even prayed for boldness. We think, how could you be any more bold than Paul? But Paul was human. And no doubt he succumbed a little bit, maybe, to peer pressure. But just remember, um, just remember who you work for, Jesus. Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. Persecution is a hallmark of being a Christian. And if you think that somebody calling you names or people making you feel uncomfortable or losing friends is bad, take a look at the overseas news. See what's happening in Africa, in the communist countries, in the Islamic countries. When Christians speak out about their faith, they're murdered. Their churches are burned. Their, kill, their children are kidnapped. So the little, little bit of light affliction that we receive here is really not a big deal when you take all things into account. Zacharias' last words were doubting God. And in verse 64, his first words after nine months of silence was praise. He, uh, his, his correction, his uh, obedience, correction led to obedience and his obedience broke the affliction. His correction led to obedience and his obedience broke the affliction. I say that because I did a study a few Wednesdays back about trials. And I try to explain to people, people are in such a hurry not to be afflicted anymore. But sometimes, well, all the times, we should really think about why we're going through what we're going. Maybe correction, may not be correction. It may be to strengthen our faith. There's, there's a whole host of reasons why we go through the things that we go through. But while we're in it, we should really try to see what the Lord is showing us. We should definitely try to learn those lessons. Now, verse 65, we see that fear came on all those who dwelt around them. And all these things were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. We spoke of the last time, um, we talked about fear the last time. And now you see there's a newfound awe and reverence for God. They saw the miraculous uh, conception of Elizabeth. She was old, she was barren, and the Lord gave her a child. And the Lord protected that child in her womb, and she was able to go full term and, and deliver the child. Zacharias couldn't speak for nine months, uh, but, they, but he was healed miraculously. So people know the move of God. People can sense the move of God. It's innately attractive to us to see a move of God. And the people were excited. But because of our sinful nature, we know that bad news travels fast. You always hear that. Uh, there's good news. There's bad news. Unfortunately, people like to dwell on the bad news. Did you hear about so-and-so? Oh, you didn't? Well, let me be the first one to tell you. It's like some people just want to, they want to get that out. They want to be the one who's in the know, so to speak. But here, when God does a mighty work, this good news cannot be contained. I see what's going on in this area. I see uh, what the Lord is doing in this area, and it's exciting to me. I think about the Thanksgiving outreach that was, we kind of put together on short notice. Actually, did you know in the beginning it was a disaster? We got to the facility, and the power went out. And somebody had the bright idea when they designed that building to put the circuit breakers where it was in a locked compartment where you couldn't get to. So the power went out. And then what happened was somebody set off the burglar alarm, so the cops were on their way. And I'm thinking, oh, what, what did I sign up for? What am I doing? But I couldn't get a hold of anybody from the facility right away. So it, it all seemed bad. It all seemed like it wasn't going to work. But God did an incredible work, and we finally got a hold of somebody, and uh, it, it, was, it was a success. It was beautiful. 
But I think about the um, we're actually having the second wave of uh, Katrina relief. We're pretty much almost got all the finishing, finishing touches on that. Operation Christmas Child. We have our holiday services and the men's and women's breakfast. So it's really cool. God is uh, he's just doing the work here. He's allowing the community to be stirred up, too. And I firmly believe this, that if we honor God by teaching his word and people sometimes stop there, well, that's all we have to do is teach the word. No, it's not all we have to do, because Jesus taught the word. He was the word, but he also loved people. You, you have to they have to be married to each other. If we teach the word and we really love the community, then the Lord will honor the work. And those two things have to go together. But in, in verse 66, not everybody knows what's going to be the, uh, the ministry of John, but people are excited. There's godly excitement. They're excited to see what's going to happen there. Okay, verses 67 through 80. It says, Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us. In the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, we have been since the world began. Who have been since the world began? That we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins, through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death, to guide our feet in the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. So we see Zacharias as one of four people so far that's filled with the Holy Spirit, the Bible tells us. And he, he gains this, this wisdom from, from this thing happening to him. And Zacharias prophesies. Well, what is prophecy? It's a God-ordained foretelling of events. Now, a prophet would foretell, foretell God's word, which means he would speak forth God's word. And one of four things would usually happen in these prophetic messages. One, there was always, there was always a weave of the Messiah through all the prophets, uh, all the prophetic books. The Messiah was always in there. And two, the prophet would tell people what God expected from them. There was a relationship issue. Three, the prophet would speak of near future events. And what that did was that solidified the truth that it was God's prophet, because every time he would speak, the thing would come forth. And then three, the prophet would, or four, the prophet would speak about a far future events, which is really, again, God knows the end from the beginning. These prophets probably didn't know this, but it's for us. We see things that are happening in our day that have been prophesied thousands of years ago, and it's amazing. It's a great witnessing tool. So it, it's, it's, uh, it solidifies that. But what was the prophet's success rate? Well, I'm going to turn to, there's only uh, two verses here. I'm going to turn to Deuteronomy 18, 21 through 22. Let's see what the success rate, the handbook for the prophet, so to speak, is. It says this, And if you say in your heart, how shall we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing does not happen or come to pass, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. 
The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. So the prophet, God's prophets, had to have a 100% success rate. I think about the, uh, you see like these, these magazines on the racks when you go shopping. And you have all these people who are prophesying what's going to happen. And maybe 70% of them come true if they're good. But 30% don't. That's not a prophet of God. I wouldn't follow that advice. But the cults have done that too. A lot of cult leaders have risen up, especially in the 1800s, to lead the people away from Christianity and a pseudo-Christianity. And a lot of these prophets made these great predictions because it was impressive to the people. It was something to, to get them excited about. But they didn't come true. And they didn't stop. Some prophets predicted the end of the world three, four times. And we're still here. So you really can't follow those people. And in the Old Testament, they would put them to death. So um, the prophet had to have a 100% success rate. Uh, just want to explain, too, because we're going to see how Jesus fulfills these roles. Do you have God had his prophets. He would speak to the person, and then the person would speak to the people. And God had his priests. He would take the sacrifices of the people to atone for their sins. The priests would handle those sacrifices and present them to God. So you had relationships going one way and then the other way. And then the king, really God wanted to be the king of his people. But he gave the people a king because they asked for one. But the king was a, uh, a really a stand-in for God to run that country. And he was supposed to run it in righteousness. So we see that these people were mediators or types of Christ. They were a shadow of things to come. That's why when Christ came, he fulfilled all three roles, prophet, priest, and king. And we're going to see that. So let's look at the elements of this prophecy. He is, Zacharias is prophesying about his infant son's ministry. And in a sense, he's also speaking about Christ's ministry, because his son was understood to be the forerunner of Christ. Verse 68 says, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Some of these words, visited, this has always been a picture of God coming down personally to deal with his people, whether for good or for bad. Jesus coming as the incarnate God gives literal meaning to the word visited. And then redeem. Looked up a few definitions to regain possession of by repurchase, to rescue or deliver as from bondage by paying a ransom. As a matter of fact, Exodus 30, one of the things they did in the Old Testament was offer ransom money. Now we know, knowing what we know now, that the blood of Christ was the ransom for us. He paid that ransom for us. And also, it's a release of a prisoner or a freeing of a slave. The Roman Empire had large-scale imprisonment and slavery. One estimate said that at one point in the Roman Empire, just about 50% of the Roman Empire was in some type of bondage. Imagine that. That's why their punishments for slaves were so harsh, because they knew that if they all got together, they could overthrow the Roman Empire. But how do we apply this whole thing about redemption? Well, last Sunday we saw in Romans 3.23 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. God has a perfect standard that we can't meet, which only leaves us with eternal separation from God. So there's a problem there. Well, going back to the definition of redemption, let's fill in the blanks. God's original possession of us was when he created us, starting with Adam and Eve. The original creation was his possession of us. He had us. But with our free will, we sold ourselves into spiritual slavery through rebellion. By sending his son, Jesus Christ, down from the, 
from heaven to, to, to become the form of a man, to die for our sins, he repurchased us. He redeemed us. Our only responsibility now is to recognize the validity of that transaction, to receive the gift. If somebody goes to, if somebody goes to give you a gift, when is that gift yours? When you actually take it, when you actually receive it. The gift never becomes yours until the transaction takes place. I think about many of us have our hands full. We have our hands full with things about ourselves and our sins. And, and they're just full. And God says, no, no, I have this free gift. It's worth more than all that stuff. And some of us don't want to let go of all the other gifts to take that gift. But you have to. And that's actually a picture of repentance. To let go of all those gifts. All that you are. All that you've built. All that, you know, your ego, your pride. To let that go and take the free gift, which is much more valuable than those gifts that you had before or those things that you've had before. In verse 69, he says, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us. A horn was a symbol for power and victory. A picture of God victoriously saving his people. Again, from what? No doubt people read this in the first century and said, ah, this is great. This must mean we're going to be delivered from the Roman Empire. But that's not what it meant. First Peter one tells us that the prophets who even those prophets who spoke God's word at the time didn't have the full picture. And first Peter one also tells us that angels desired to look into this salvation that that was going to happen. So God was the only one who knew the end from the beginning. We have a great advantage, obviously, having the completed scriptures. Now, to me, I liken this to a jigsaw puzzle. I'm not really a fan of jigsaw puzzles because I don't have the patience for them. I could do the ones with my son that have like 20 pieces, but the real big ones, you can have it. But what I do is if I do a jigsaw puzzle, I do it the easy way. I get all the corner pieces first because there's only four of them. And then I get the flat pieces to make the frame, and then I give up. No, but uh, <laughs> to, me, to me, God putting this picture together from the beginning was like a jigsaw puzzle. The prophets had a few pieces here, a few pieces there. The angels could see things here and there. But it wasn't until everything started coming to place and Jesus died for our sins did the picture start to look like something. See, it became more clear. That is the beauty of a jigsaw puzzle, if you're not looking at the picture beforehand. But um, in Jesus, we have been visited by God. In Jesus, we have been redeemed by God. In Jesus, we have been saved by his horn, provided by God. This is something to rejoice about, because we can only, without it, we can only expect a fearful expectation of judgment and fiery indignation without it. Hebrew speaks about that. So, you know, the secular world doesn't get us. Let's see, last Sunday we talked about hell and people applauded. So let's say a secularist comes in here and they have a hardened heart. Well, if they hear the message, we can hope for the first thing is for them to be convicted and come to the Lord. The other thing that could happen is they'll probably think we're crazy. Did you imagine somebody coming in here and hearing that and telling somebody about that? You know, I went to this church for the first time to visit it, and the pastor talked about hell. And the strangest thing, people started applauding. How bizarre. You know, people just don't get it. They don't get us. But there is an attraction. There's a great attraction for us to realize that we can be free of our sins. It's a catharsis. It's like a good cry. It feels good. But with a good cry, your problems are still there. We can find a way. We know that there's a way provided for us to be free from our sins forever and not ever have to worry about those again. Um, some of us are running from our past. Some of us are trying to deaden memories that they've had, bad things that they've done. Everybody has a different background here. Some people, we're running from ourselves. 
and some people won't even forgive themselves. So there's a lot of things that we can be, um, we can be freed from through Jesus Christ. I want to read a, a story for you from the Daily Bread that I found kind of interesting, cute. It says, two brothers were extremely mischievous, and their parents were at their wits, wits end. So they asked their pastor to talk with the boys. The pastor sat the younger one down first. He wanted him to think about God. So he started the conversation by asking, where is God? The boy didn't respond, so he repeated the question in a stern tone. Again, he gave no answer. Frustrated, the pastor shook his finger in the boy's face and shouted, where is God? The boy bolted from the room, ran home, and hid in his closet. His brother followed him and asked, what happened? The younger boy replied, we're in big trouble now. God is missing, and they think we did it. (laughs) But the truth is, we are guilty before God. We're all guilty. If God is holding a chain with so many links in it, from one end and we're holding it from the other end and all we can see below us is the lake of fire but if he pulls us up from that chain we can be with him forever if one of those uh, how many links does it take for that chain to break and for the person to be plummeted into that lake of fire only one link that's where we all are before God without Jesus but Jesus has provided us a safety rope to pull us to safety and eternal security but I, I even think uh, about my other job as a police officer. People just have guilty consciences. You know, I pull somebody over and I ask for their information. Now, remember, in Title 39, the motor vehicle statute, there's got to be 600 laws that you could break. So I'm pulling somebody over and they're like, I wasn't speeding. I didn't say anything yet. <laughs> or was it the, the yellow light that you pulled me over for? They're basically telling you that they went through the red light. But, you know, when you, when you, it, it could be a very stressful job because nobody, nobody likes you. You come in in the uniform and people just, what does he know about? You know, they're all on edge. But we are guilty. We're all guilty before God. But Jesus wants to free us. He wants us to take this pack off of our back. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven, twenty-eight through 30. He said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What, what a picture. I mean, we all carry through life burdens. Uh, you know, some of us, you know, there's so many things that you could be going through. Even if, if a relative passes away and you think, well, I should have spent more time or I should have talked more about the gospel. We carry so much in ourselves and we try to cover it up with so many things right but we don't have to be guilty Jesus has taken that guilt and shame away from us and buried it at the cross so moving further we see that the Messiah comes from the seed of David 2nd Samuel 7:12, in the last verse here and then verses 70 through 73 he says as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets who have been since the world began that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. In Leviticus 26, is, is a very long chapter. I'm just going to read a, a few portions of it. There's a conditional uh, statement that God makes to his people. If you do this, then this will happen. If you do this, then that will happen. It's very simple to understand. He says in verse 14, 
But if you do not obey me and do not observe all these commandments, and if you despise my statutes, or if your soul abhors my judgments, so that you do not perform all my commandments but break my covenant, I also will do this to you. I will even appoint terror over you, wasting disease and fever which shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat of it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be defeated by your enemies. Moving fast forward to verse 40, the promise of restoration, which is what God is always looking for. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and then they have also walked contrary to me, and that I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies, if their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember, I will remember the land. So what, is these, um, what are these agreements? Well, we know Genesis 12, when God speaks to Abraham, he says, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that was a picture, of course, that was a messianic prophecy. And in Genesis 22, just trying to lay a little groundwork here, because it talks about the agreements that God made with the forefathers, especially with Abraham. In Genesis 22, 16 through 18, God says to Abraham, this is right after uh, Abraham shows God that he would even give up his son for God. And God spares the boy, uh, Isaac, from death. Verse 16, he says, And by myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. In blessing I will bless you, and in multiplying I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So there's a promise from the beginning of what will happen if, if the children of Israel obey, what will happen if they disobey, and, and God delivering them from their enemies. So that's where that comes from. The question is, did God deliver the people from their enemies? When you read this, in the first century, did that happen? Okay, well, the question is, is it from God's perspective, or is it from man's perspective? That's the key. We spoke a little ways back that Rabbi Rachman, the first century a Talmud writer said, no, woe to us, for the scepter has departed from Judah and the Messiah has not come. Some of the rabbis were of the opinion in the first century that, well, all the signs were there. And of course, they rejected Jesus. So they said the Messiah had not come. So from their perspective, not even the Messiah's promise was fulfilled. But we know that God always keeps his promises. But the disobedient people, as, as disobedient as they were, God has always saved them from total annihilation, starting with the Egyptians. They chased the children of Israel down to, to totally destroy them in the desert. But God saved them. You think about Haman. He used the Persian government and the Persian laws to make a system to destroy all the Jews. But God saved them. If you look at the Romans in the first century, it looked pretty bad for the Jews when they besieged Jerusalem. But God delivered them, not total annihilation. And even the Nazis in the final solution. It looked pretty bad there, but God also delivered them. So... Even today, the Jews, Israel gave up the Gaza Strip in hopes of peace, uh, you know, the, the west side of Israel, and, and the, the, the bombings haven't stopped. But God will also protect them from their enemies, from total annihilation. Okay, God has continued to save them from their enemies, and he'll even do this in the future. 
Daniel 12 speaks about the time of Jacob's trouble. It speaks about the time that things would, the persecution for the Jews would be so bad. Never, it was never like that before, nor will it ever be like that again. So what we've seen throughout history, it's going to be even worse in end times prophecy. And God will still deliver them. Remember, the Nazis are gone. The Romans are gone. Haman is gone. There's not one Roman soldier anymore in the land of Israel. So, and, and Israel's still there today as, as one united nation. And there's also a spiritual aspect, saving from their enemies. Who is the enemy of our souls? It's Satan. Who is the one behind all these evil forces that have always tried to destroy God's people? It's Satan. What good is physical deliverance if there's no spiritual deliverance? Okay, um, as far as promises being fulfilled, you know, the Bible is filled with hope. We know that Proverbs 13:12 in the beginning says that hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's a picture of depression. You know, your heart is sick. You know, David went through times where he was just so, he was so downcast. But the Lord eventually lifted him up. We're living in an area today, especially in New Jersey, where everything's expensive. You know, and the holiday season is all about getting stuff and people stealing your parking spots. And, you know, all kinds of things happening, right? And you just have to pray about that. But this is the type of, of, of place that it, it can be tough. There's a lot of pressure. And some of you can feel that you have no hope. Some of you are walking around right now and, and wondering, you know, where is the Lord? Where is the God of Israel? Where is, where, where is God? But help is on the way. I know that was a political slogan in the last campaign, but unlike politicians, God always fulfills his promises. So uh, he, he's always right on time to, to help you out and take care of you. Verses 74 through 75, he says, To grant, that, grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. Well, wait a minute. We're going from one enemy to the hands of one enemy now to serving God, but I want to be free. Why do I have to go from serving one to serving another? It doesn't matter. It's just a different master. I live in America. I want to be free. That's why I live here. I, I just want to be free to do what I want. I want to drink and drug as much as I want. I want to sleep around as much as I want. That's freedom. That's what I want. I don't want to go and have to serve God now. Well, let's, let's talk about what true freedom is. Romans 6, 15 through 23. Romans 6, 15 through 23. Paul speaks about what freedom is. Paul says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin to death or of obedience to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered, and having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So what is true freedom? I remember uh, I 
me and another officer, he actually happened to be an atheist. We were stuck in the car together for a few hours, which was good. But uh, we picked up this young lady from uh, one of the county prisons, and we had to transport her. It was a pretty good drive from one prison to the other to, to answer some charges. Young girl, cute girl. Um, she was sitting in the back, and he, he, you'd think this guy was doing a documentary. He asked her about a whole life story. And my motivation, of course, was to tell her about the Lord. So we both were coming from different angles. But either way, she told us her story. She's got two kids, which she admits that she'll probably never see again. I'm like, why? She goes, well, I'm addicted to heroin. She's so addicted to heroin that the maternal instincts have kind of been washed away. And all she can think about now is getting more heroin. She started out with marijuana, graduated to cocaine, eventually ended up at heroin. And each successive high brought such a, a rush, a euphoria, that people just continue to chase that high. So it actually was a very sad story, but she, is, she was free to sleep around. She was free to have as many partners as she wanted. She was free to do drugs. She did whatever she wanted. But who's the real slave? This woman will probably never see her children again, and... Uh, she'll probably continue to go through the prison system. You know, it's a big revolving door. Now, me, I try to keep myself from certain things, uh, you know, and I watch myself. And, you know, Paul says that all things are lawful, but not all things are edifying. But who's who's free or me or her? Now, of course, I gave her the gospel and I gave her some information. I don't know where it's going to go. I just can only I think about her once in a while and I pray for her because it's such a, a horrible story not ever seeing your kids again, and not really having that much concern. So what Paul's saying is, we, we're going to present our slaves, ourselves slaves to somebody, whether it's to righteousness or whether it's sin. Those of us who really think that we're free to do whatever we want, we become slaves, we become in bondage. And honestly, it's not until you bring your hands together voluntarily and you bind them yourself and you give them to God and say, I'm yours, that is the only time that you will ever be free. So, verse 76, this is pretty much the job description of John the Baptist. Uh, He pretty much talks about John's role. And 77, he says, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Uh, John is going to prepare the people's hearts to receive the Messiah. He's going to give them knowledge and the understanding of what to do. As we go further in Luke, you see that the soldiers say, and what should we do? Everybody asks the question in their profession, but what should we do? And John tells them. He gives them the knowledge. He gives them the information, and he primes them and prepares them to receive the Messiah. And, and repentance has to be there. John, John spoke heavily about repentance. Remember what I talked about holding the things in your arms? You can't receive the Lord without repentance. You just can't. Because if you want to say, well, I want to keep everything about my lifestyle. I want to do everything that I want to do, and I'm going to take God for a little extra security. I'm going to hedge my bets. Right. It doesn't work like that, because then what you're doing is you're taking the Lord and you're making him one of a bunch of a bunch of little idols at your altar. And then you kind of put Jesus on that idol uh, on the altar, too, as an idol. And he doesn't want to be there and he refuse to be there. He's either Lord of all or not Lord at all. In verse 78, the day spring is, is a picture of Christ. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So this is a picture of light illuminating and piercing through darkness. That's the funny thing about a flashlight or a good lighting system. If you're in total darkness and you set up a lighting system, it could look as bright as day. But did they ever develop a dark light? Do you know a 
an instrument that anybody can use to now all of a sudden make it dark in here by pressing a button, aside from turning the lights off. It only works one way. Light pierces through darkness, but the light is so powerful, the light of the Lord is so powerful, that there's nothing that you can do to cover his light. You can't hide it. It's not possible. And then the last verse says that, So the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the deserts till the day of his manifestation to Israel. What was he doing in the desert? It's, we can only, it's only conjecture. People have speculated a lot of things. Remember, his parents were elderly. She gives birth. Uh, by the time he becomes a man, uh, they, they might have died. Again, it's just speculation. So he, you know, he goes into the deserts. Um, remember, he's now unspotted from the world. James speaks about that, to be unspotted from the world. He's by himself in the desert. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. It's just him and the Lord. So when he comes out and he preaches, remember, Jesus was God. So Jesus didn't succumb to peer pressure. But they, God took John the Baptist and made it so that he had no, like that familiarity breeds contempt. He had no buddies in the world that he could come out and say, oh, but you're okay. John came out loaded for bear. He told the people, he hit them right between the eyes. He told them what they needed to hear. He was not a respecter of men. He just wanted to please God. So in wrapping up, uh, Zacharias saw the light literally. Zacharias, again, he performed religious services. He was in the ministry, but he went from fear and doubt to praise and joy and understanding of God. My hope is that when we, when we run into fear and doubt and peer pressure, that we seek God, because the Bible says that, Deuteronomy 4.29 says that if we seek God with a whole heart, if we seek him with all we have, that we will be found by God. But the key is, the Bible says, to seek him with a whole heart.